Welcome to the Unmade Podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Recently, I published my first book, Media Unmade. It quickly became an Amazon bestseller. It's the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. In the coming weeks, I'll be sharing the full audio edition of the book here on the Unmade podcast. Coming up is the next chapter. Now remember, only Unmade's paying subscribers get to hear every chapter. If you haven't already, you can sign up at unmade.media. As well as supporting my work as an independent journalist, you'll receive exclusive industry analysis in both written and podcast form. And once you sign up, you'll still be able to get our paid podcasts inside the app of your choice. It only takes a couple of clicks. Now, on with the book. Chapter 2. The New Adventures of Lachlan Murdoch. In which Lachlan Murdoch gets into radio and TV with James Packer, then replaces one CEO with another prompting a courtroom stoosh with Kerry Stokes. Even on a Monday night in February, Australia's media industry can be relied on to show up for a party. And on 9th of February 2010, the bosses of the Nova Radio Network have dialled it up a notch. They're spending a six-figure sum, throwing a huge celebration at Carriage Works, one of Sydney's trendiest event venues. The former railway workshop in Evely offers a backdrop of industrial grunge. The free drinks are flowing, the canapes are circulating and the cocktails, coloured Nova Red, are being thrown back. If you were to ask what they do for a living, most of the guests' mums wouldn't be able to explain. The guests work for media agencies, the middlemen and women who decide where the $13 billion spent on advertising each year in Australia ends up. For the first few years in a media agency, the pay is bad and the working day is mundane. There's nothing glamorous about booking ads for clients and then checking that the TV networks, radio stations and newspapers actually ran them. For the 20-somethings who make up most of those junior buyers working inside media agencies, the constant free booze is a major consolation. Nova hopes that by showing its guests a good time and reminding them what the radio station stands for, next time they are writing a media plan, they'll throw some dollars in the network's direction. And with on-air radio contracts usually changing at the end of each year, Nova has a lot of new shows to talk about. The presenters have flown in from across the country to be at the party. Apart from national drive-time host Ryan Sheldon, who's inexplicably turned up in stripy shorts, just about every other person in the room is wearing black skinny jeans. Virtually all the men are in check shirts, the women in sleeveless tops. It's the media industry uniform of 2010. The station presenters pose for photographs in front of the giant Nova Boy avatar on the whitewashed brick wall. The gangling Dan DeBuff crouches low to get down to the same height as his new co-host on the nighttime show, Maz Compton. 
Nova Sydney's James Curley stands awkwardly next to Michelle Anderson and Kent Smallsy Small as the trio telegraph the diffident chemistry of their first few weeks presenting the national 7pm to 10pm show. The Getty Images photographer gives most of her attention to the presenters of the new Nova Sydney breakfast show, Merrick Watts, Ricky Lee Coulter and Scott Dooley. Because it draws the biggest audience of the day, the breakfast show is the most important slot on any radio station, as it's where the advertisers want to be. Watts is the survivor of the Merrick and Rosso show, which launched the station back in 2001 and has only just come to an end. Co-host Tim Ross moved on two months ago. Ricky Lee is dabbling in radio seven years on from finding fame as a contestant on Australian Idol. And Dooley is still figuring out whether he wants to be a comedian or radio presenter. While the main purpose of the party is for Nova to talk up the prospects of the Merrick, Dools and Ricky Lee show to the advertising market, those in the know are just as intrigued by another famous face. Making his first appearance since striking out on his own and buying half of the radio station three months before is Lachlan Murdoch. The 38-year-old looks tanned and trim, with close-cropped hair and the sleeves of his black, open-necked shirt rolled up to the elbows. Drive-time host Michael Whitfley, clutching one of those Nova cocktails, drapes his arm over his new boss's shoulder for a photograph. The welcome speeches get underway, with everyone keen to make a good impression on Murdoch. The crowd turns to look at each speaker as they pop up on three small stages at various points around the room. The main stage at the front remains curtained off. Nova Sydney's station manager, David Borian, tells the audience that the first office appearance for Murdoch had been like a royal visit. He jokes, I've never seen more people vacuuming, more frocks being frocked up, more hairstyles being done. Then comes the big surprise. The radio station has called in a favour with record company Universal Music Group. Behind the curtains, ready to surprise the audience, is rock band Evermore. Evermore is the personification of Nova's playlist policy, straddling the rock and pop world. The party producers have prepared what's known in the events industry as a kabuki drop. The plan is for the curtain to fall sharply to the floor as the band hits its first note, revealing their presence. On cue, Evermore strikes the opening chord of his biggest song, the number one hit, Light Surrounding You. But something goes wrong with the mechanism, and the curtain doesn't move. Hidden from view, Evermore keep playing. It becomes like something from Spinal Tap and turns into a peep show. The guests take it in turns to push their heads through a gap in the curtains to peer at the band. Welcome to the Evermore Radio Experience, lead singer John Hume tells the party over the speakers. Someone just got fired, adds his brother and bandmate Peter. Three months earlier, patience is a virtue. Lachlan Murdoch was beginning to work out what to do with his life outside of News Corp. After running the newspapers in Australia and moving with the company to an even bigger role as Deputy Chief Operating Officer in the US, 
Rupert Murdoch's oldest son had bumped up against wily political operators at the top of the company. Outside observers could not quite agree what was the final straw that made Lachlan walk away. Word was that out on the US East Coast, Roger Ailes, creator of the company's right-wing news phenomenon, Fox News, had defended his turf in New York, while Chief Operating Officer Peter Chernin had done the same in Los Angeles on the West Coast. After apparently concluding that, although he might be heir apparent, he was not going to be backed by his father, Lachlan had surprised the outside world by quitting his job in July 2005 and heading back to Australia. He remained on the company's board, but was otherwise out. It now looked like Brother James, working for News Corp in the UK, was the new favourite in the succession race. Back in Australia, Lachlan's business record for the company's local arm, News Limited, had been a mixed one. He'd learned the ropes, running News Limited's Queensland newspapers, before heading to Sydney to run the Australian and eventually the national operation and he'd brokered News Limited's canny investment in real estate platform REA Group. But there were negatives on the scorecard too. Lachlan had led the failed attempt to take News Limited into the telco business by investing in OneTel alongside his friend James Packer. The collapse of the company into administration in May 2001 had seen News Limited lose its entire $575 million investment, which would have been enough to derail the career of anybody else. With financial regulator ASIC eventually losing its marathon litigation over OneTel in November 2009, memories of that misadventure were finally fading. Now, though, Lachlan was doing something in his own right. He had created his own investment vehicle, Ilria, led by Siobhan McKenna, a former high-flying partner at consulting company McKinsey. In 2007, Ilria had attempted to organise a $3.3 billion takeover of consolidated media holdings, the James Packer and Kerry Stokes aligned owner of stakes in Foxtel and Fox Sports. The bid, which also involved Packer, had faltered when the escalating global credit crunch caused hedge fund SPO partners to pull out of the deal. That had proved to be good fortune when the GFC kicked in in October 2008, driving down media valuations. And now its aftermath was creating bargain opportunities for Ilria. In April 2009, Ilria had outlaid $15 million on buying 9% of regional TV broadcaster Prime Media, which needed to raise funds after it became weighed down by debt. Three years later, Murdoch would sell the stake for a 50% profit. However, a bigger deal was on the block. Nova's owner, DMG Radio, was for sale. After a 10-year building process, the owner of DMG Radio, the UK-based Daily Mail and General Trust, was looking to get out of Australian radio. DMG was Australia's youngest national radio company and had been built in the most expensive way possible. The founder of DMG Radio Australia, Paul Thompson, a veteran of the local radio industry who'd previously helped turn Stereo into a powerhouse, had led DMG 
through the gruelling process of building a national metro network through a series of licence auctions. Over the course of four years, the company had spent $481 million acquiring licences for Nova across the five capital cities of Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Brisbane and Adelaide, along with second licences in Sydney and Melbourne. The most expensive licence had been the one to get Nova Sydney on air in 2001 at a cost of $155 million. Since then, led by laconic Kiwi programme director Dean Buchanan, Nova had been a runaway success, with each new city launch going a little better than the one before. The radically different radio format of putting both pop and rock on the same station and being braver than the existing commercial players in introducing listeners to new music, had made Nova the most successful radio launch in two decades. Nova had managed to attract younger listeners. The original breakfast presenters at Nova Sydney, Merrick Watts and Tim Ross, had moved over from the ABC's youth station, Triple J. Boosted by a no-more-than-two-ads-in-a-row policy, the network had rated strongly, and delivered good profits. And unlike the other networks, which had been put together piecemeal with each city station having its own identity, Nova had the benefit of a single national brand. Murdoch and McKenna closed the deal to take ownership of half of DMG Radio for anything between $50 million and $70 million, depending on which numbers you believe. Later, he'd pay a reported $85 million for the other half. Considering the half a billion dollars it took to secure the licences a decade before, it was a bargain. The deal was announced on the 29th of November 2009. Murdoch said in a statement, Patience is a virtue, and after exhaustively searching the market for the right acquisition, we have found in DMG Radio Australia the right business, the right partner and the right brands, which are positioned for exemplary growth. Killing Vega Lachlan was soon a fixture at Nova's Sydney studios in Saunders Street. That corner of Piermont was a mini-media hub, with Macquarie Radio Network's talk station 2GB on another floor of the building, and Network 10 on the same street. Murdoch's arrival coincided with the management at DMG Radio finally making a tough decision. Vega Radio, DMG's mini-network for baby boomers in Sydney and Melbourne, had bled money since its 2005 launch, and hardly anyone was listening. Named for the brightest star in the constellation Lyra, Vega was not twinkling like the Nova shooting star. The idea behind Vega's 2005 launch had been to persuade ABC listeners aged 40 to 60 to switch across for intelligent conversation that was otherwise in short supply across commercial radio. In theory, these reformed ABC listeners would be the sort of affluent consumers that advertisers would love to reach. It was an expensive presenter lineup boasting Angela Cattons, Sean McAuliffe, Denise Scott, Wendy Harmer, Tony Squires, Mikey Robbins, Ian Dicko Dixon, Dave O'Neill, Rebecca Wilson and Francis Leach. Breaking the traditional radio format rules had allowed Nova to find itself a place 
and management tried to repeat the trick with Vega. Last time, the programmers had only one job to do and were able to give the project time and focus. This time, they were rushed and Vega had lost out to the distraction of completing the Nova network. ABC listeners didn't like the ads and didn't move over. In fact, they barely even gave Vega a go. So DMG had tried dialing back on the conversation and adding in more music with a boomer-friendly contemporary and classic rock playlist. Over time, ratings had not improved enough to justify the expensive presenter lineup. In the first set of ratings for 2010, Vega had pulled in just 3.4% of the Sydney radio audience. Vega Melbourne didn't do much better at 3.7%. At that limited reach, the advertisers had been staying away. Even before Murdoch arrived, the writing was on the wall. Talent contracts in radio generally finish at the end of the calendar year. As the contracts of key presenters expired in 2009, they had not been renewed. In October, Sydney Breakfast presenters Tony Squires and Mikey Robbins had been told they would not be asked to come back in 2010. Their co-host, Rebecca Wilson, had already called it and resigned earlier. They weren't replaced. The station started simply playing music in the breakfast time slot. It was time to switch to a cheaper format. Although a change was already brewing before Murdoch walked through the door, it would be the first big move with him at the helm. To the outside world, the switch seemed abrupt. On the afternoon of Thursday the 11th of March 2010, goodie bags were delivered to media agencies and journalists covering the media beat. They contained a white t-shirt and mug bearing a new logo. It was a drawing of the words classic rock, spelled out in black with a guitar cable. Vega was dead and the next morning classic rock was on the air in Sydney and Melbourne. In the first set of ratings for classic rock, the audiences barely moved, with Sydney pulling in a woeful audience share of 2.1% and Melbourne 2.8%. In Melbourne, Vega's Dicko and Dave breakfast show survived for another four months on classic rock before being axed. Then, like Sydney, the network opted for no presenter at all at breakfast. Or to use the public relations speak of the announcement... 91.5 FM today announced the station's complete focus on the celebration of classic rock would be extended further into the breakfast session. Southern Cross Stereo's heritage rock station, Triple M, had the most to lose with classic rock on its turf. But management need not have worried. Triple M made slightly more noise about its own classic rock credentials, but otherwise barely broke a sweat. The launch also didn't trouble Australian radio network's Sydney station, WSFM, which also had something of a rock edge at the time. The second round of ratings after the relaunch, released in August 2010, didn't improve matters for classic rock, with the station's audience share falling in Sydney and staying dead flat in Melbourne. It was an anticlimactic ending to programme boss Dean Buchanan's long run with the company. Two days later, he departed. After 10 years, 
It is time to have fresh ears and direction on the brand, and it's a good time for me to pursue new challenges, said the press release. Once Buchanan's successor was on board, fixing classic rock would be high on the to-do list. Going digital. Lachlan was about to get busier. His ambitions went beyond Nova. In a few months' time, he would be running television company Network 10, too. Not that he knew that yet. For years, a demographic vice had been slowly closing on 10. For most of the Australian television industry's existence, there'd been a natural order. At the top of the ratings would sit the Nine Network, for most of its history owned by the Packer family. TCN 9 was the country's first TV station, launching on 16th of September 1956. Then came Seven, number two network for most of its history, but by 2010, finally winning the ratings and the most advertising revenue too. And Ten's natural place was third. It was an equilibrium that had worked for everyone. The TV buyers at the media agencies would split most of their advertising budgets across seven and nine, and they'd spend enough with ten to keep the other two honest. But ten was often the most profitable for many of those years. Since 1992, it had been targeting a younger audience than its rivals, which was attractive to advertisers, and it ran at a much lower cost. Ten spent less on news gathering, program making and sports rights than nine and seven. Advertisers were spending around $3.6 billion per year on the Australian TV industry. This meant there was plenty of money to go around all three networks. Advertisers and media agencies plan their marketing campaigns with certain demographics in mind rather than targeting the whole population. The most common target is the demographic of those aged 25 to 54. In theory, older viewers are not worth bothering with as much because they're already set in their ways and advertising is unlikely to change their behaviour. Nine and seven would go against each other for that 25 to 54 target. Ten would skew towards the 16 to 39 demographic. The simple formula of being the network that showed The Simpsons and Neighbours worked just fine for 10 to pull in those younger viewers. But a squeeze was coming, and it was going to hit 10 first. The new generation of viewers was watching less free-to-air television, and after putting it off for as long as possible, because of concerns about fragmenting audiences and increasing their programming costs, Australia's TV networks were finally launching more channels. It would mean that Seven and Nine could use these new channels to peel off some of Ten's younger audience. Initially, the digital channels were slow to take off. Few viewers yet owned the digital set-top boxes they'd need to watch the channels, and only the newest televisions had them built in. It was chicken and egg. With relatively few viewers, the networks weren't particularly keen to invest in the channels. And without the channels, the public had little incentive to upgrade their televisions. But they would have to soon. The analogue signal was going to be turned off so that the government could auction the radio spectrum to telcos for the coming 4G mobile phone networks. 
10 had been the first commercial network to make a move, launching its sport-focused high-definition channel 1 on 26th of March 2009. Although at that point 10 had the rights to two live AFL games per week and Formula 1 motorsports, for the most part, one had a less compelling offering. Indian Premier League 2020 cricket, US college basketball, and extreme paintball were the sorts of second-tier content that made up most of the lineup. Key to the digital channels were content deals with US studios. The competitive Australian networks were among their highest-paying customers in the world. The way the deals worked was that the networks would agree to buy a package of everything put out by the studio. They were stuck with the bad in order to secure the good. Usually that would mean a handful of shows that would rate well on the main channel and others that might not have seen the light of day until the secondary channels came along. Famously, Seven's turnaround in 2005 had been driven by its deal with ABC Disney, which produced in a single season Lost, Desperate Housewives and Grey's Anatomy. On 9th of August 2009, Nine began the squeeze on 10 with the launch of its first digital channel, Go. It skewed younger than the main channel, tapping into the company's expensive content deal with Warner Studios. Shows like Big Bang Theory, the US edition of the Survivor franchise, The Bachelor, CSI and Gossip Girl made it onto the launch showreel. Of the three big commercial networks, Seven was the only one to be clear from the outset that it wanted all its channels to fall under its main brand. Its first digital offering, Seven Two, launched on 1st of November 2009. A replay of Michael Jackson's last filmed concert was the opening show. It followed up with the male skewing Seven Mate in August 2010. A few days after Seven announced its plans for Seven Mate, Ten took the studio deals a step further. Ten's next channel would be called Eleven. The content would come from CBS Studios. But it wouldn't just be a licensing deal. It would be a joint venture with CBS Studios International. To get around the law prohibiting overseas control of Australian TV networks, the two companies created a new joint venture, Eleven Co-Proprietary Limited. Ten would own two-thirds and CBS the other third. Eleven would air CBS shows like Dexter, The Office, the reboot of 90210 and Futurama. Ten also signed up to extend its output deal with CBS for reliable shows for the main channel like NCIS and The Good Wife. In a much riskier move, Ten also decided to shift The Simpsons and Neighbours over to Eleven. It was bold because the secondary channels would pull in much smaller ratings than the main channels, so advertisers would expect to pay much less. The deal came in a brief period when the ASX-listed 10 had no dominant shareholder voice. Canadian media company Canwest Global Communications had sold its 50.1% ownership of Network 10 for a solid $680 million in an attempt to stave off bankruptcy in late 2009. Soon after the CBS deal, on the 26th of September 2010, 
Nine completed the second round of the digital land grab by launching GEM, which stood for General Entertainment and Movies. To use the advertising jargon, it would target the demographics of females 35 plus and grocery buyers. Nightly reruns of Friends, plus Weeds, The New Adventures of Old Christine, CSI and Secret Diary of a Cool Girl would make up the initial lineup. The digital disruption had arrived for broadcast television. Calculated risks. And there was one other important dynamic. Ten had become dangerously ambitious. Under CEO Grant Blackley and Chief Programming Officer David Mott, the network had upended the usual ratings dynamic between the three networks. Ten had bought the rights to a dowdy cooking show that aired in a daytime slot on the BBC in the UK, MasterChef. Ten invested in better production and a more ambitious format delivered by production company Fremantle. Against industry expectations, when MasterChef first aired in 2009, it had become a phenomenon, making household names of its three judges, Matt Preston, George Columbaris and Gary Megham. The final episode of the first season saw an estimated 4.1 million viewers tune in to see Julie Goodwin beat Po Ling Yao to the title. A remarkable 70% of people watching television that Sunday night were tuned into the show. Better yet, the show had been incredibly advertiser-friendly, contributing to Coles finally overtaking Woolworths as the country's most successful supermarket. The success of MasterChef helped persuade Ten's management to think bigger. Could the network beat the demographic squeeze by investing in content to take on Seven and Nine directly? Ten revealed the details of his big move at his Upfront event on 15th of September 2010. The Upfronts are the key point in the annual television calendar where the TV networks attempt to persuade advertisers that the schedule for the coming year is better than ever. The shindig consists of a polished presentation from key executives followed by an enormous party. In a market where a shift of just 1% of advertising spend amounts to more than $30 million, dropping a million dollars on a successful upfront makes business sense. In this case, Ten hired the Royal Hall of Industries at Moore Park and appeared to have rented every couch and lamp in Sydney to decorate the room. One of the big pieces of news was that Ten would be spending $20 million on filling the void left by the shift of Neighbours and The Simpsons to Eleven by offering viewers a two and a half hour sweep of news and current affairs every night. Seven and Nine's nightly 6pm news battle would now be an expensive three-way fight. Ten would continue to run its hour-long News at Five national bulletin Then-veteran TV journalist George Negus, poached from SBS, would present half an hour of news analysis from 6pm. A nightly local news bulletin for each state would follow at 6.30pm. And for those who weren't yet tired of hearing what was going on in the world, would be asked to stick around for The 7pm Project, a panel-based news show created by former chat show host Rove McManus's production company, 
Roving Enterprises, which was still finding its feet after a year on air. And there was more to talk about at the upfronts. The biggest announcement of the night was a brand new reality format, The Renovators, which explained the home furnishings theme of the party. The idea was to take the competitive creativity of MasterChef and combine it with home renovation. It would have been commissioned with an eye to the success of Nine's homemaking contest, The Block. It was risky. I interviewed CEO Grant Blackley on camera at the event after the indoor fireworks display had ended. Shouting above the noise of live music, I asked whether the wall of news was a gamble. He replied, We take calculated risks. Last year, people talked about MasterChef. They shook their heads and said it couldn't happen. Coming to news is a very positive calculated risk. Our effort will reap enormous rewards. That's critical to our future. We're spending the money. We're employing the people. It was to be Blackley's last upfront at the helm of 10. A month later, on 19th of October 2010, James Packer surprised the market and bought a 17.9% stake in 10 for $280 million. And then he surprised the market again by inviting his old friend Lachlan Murdoch to join him in the adventure. Lachlan's father, Rupert, had been the one to originally put 10 together as the country's third capital city television network. But the rules on foreign media ownership meant that Murdoch had been forced to sell when he became an American citizen in 1985. The pair thought 10 might be worth more thanks to the new free-to-air digital channels. They agreed to split the 17.9% stake in 10 50-50 and on 9th of November it was announced that they would both be joining the board. On 12th of November, outgoing executive chairman Nick Falloon did what he could to secure Blackley's role, extending his contract by another three years. Packer and Murdoch were not the only ones interested in 10. Later in November, mining billionaire Gina Reinhart bought 10% and on 26th of November was invited to join the board too. Despite the new contract, Blackley lasted only a few more weeks once Falloon was gone. The year started badly for 10 on air, and behind the scenes. The news and current affairs extravaganza quickly unravelled. Despite heavy promotion, the first night of 6pm with George Negus on 25th of January drew an average Metro audience of 606,000, well behind the long-established competing bulletins on 9 and 7. Within days, Negus faded further, dropping to audiences of less than 400,000, while 7 News and 9 News were pulling in around 1.3 million and 1.1 million. On 8th of February, the first night of the official 2011 TV ratings year, 10 hit a new milestone, with the main network beaten in a time slot by one of its digital channels for the first time. 10 6.30pm evening news rated just 310,000 and was outrated by neighbours, which averaged 311,000 over on 11. It was becoming clear that Blackley would struggle to get along with Murdoch, who wanted to be more hands-on than a simple board director. In January, Blackley rebuffed a suggestion from Murdoch that they should share executive responsibilities. 
Later, the Australian Financial Review's James Chessel would reveal an extraordinary incident where the two new shareholders took Blackley out on the harbour on Packer's boats to harangue him in a scene reminiscent of the episode of The Sopranos where Tony Soprano, Silvio Dante and Paulie Walnuts take Big Pussy for a fatal yacht ride. Chessel wrote, For most of the time, there was nobody else on board except the crew. Blackley was a captive audience, literally. As the huge vessel cruised around and drinks were poured, Packer attacked. Physically imposing ordinarily, Packer seemed to loom larger than life, wearing only a pair of Speedos as the sun set. He repeated his criticism that Blackley was responsible for letting Ten's costs get out of control and the network's lack of a clear strategy. On the 23rd of February 2011, Blackley was asked into the office of new chairman Brian Long and was fired. He'd already packed his stuff. The company announced Blackley's departure alongside an update to the market that profits had fallen by 15% in the first half of its financial year. Although advertising revenue had grown slightly, spending had risen faster. The statement contained another signal too. The board continues to be responsible for all decisions regarding the strategic direction of the company and has decided to conduct an immediate strategic review of the company's operations. The decision to spend big and take on 9 and 7 was already up in the air. And there was one further twist. At the unanimous request of the board, Lachlan Murdoch has agreed to accept the role of acting chief executive officer during the period that an executive search is undertaken for a new chief executive officer. Mr Ambitious The job of a commercial television network CEO is a demanding one. Like the manager of any business, they must be able to keep a handle on two variables, income and outgoings. The biggest single cost is content. This includes the cost of shows bought in from the American studios, shows made locally, usually in partnership with independent production companies based on an overseas format, running a news service, and sports rights. There's never enough money for a CEO to do everything they'd like to. The CEO has to decide how best to spend the budget to deliver the right audience across the year. That's not necessarily the biggest audience. It might simply be the one that advertisers most want to talk to. The most reliable way of delivering ratings is sports rights, because audiences will always tune in, particularly for AFL and NRL in the winter, and cricket and tennis in the summer. Consequently, they cost a huge amount. And with sports rights, it can be less dangerous to overpay than it is to let them go to a competitor. An instinct for what works as popular programming is also important. The sort of shows enjoyed by educated middle-class professionals who work inside media companies rarely work in prime time in working-class Australian households. The ultimate responsibility of the CEO is to balance the risk of spending too little and lacking the content to bring in an audience with keeping costs low enough to make a profit. Scheduling is a dark art. Running a TV network isn't just about putting on air the best shows. 
when they go to air matters just as much. Sunday night attracts the best audiences. More people are at home. So that's a good time to put on a big show. But it also means increased competition in the time slot from rivals. And if a rival network is having a good run in the final weeks of a particular show, the scheduler may decide to wait before launching a new series against it, in which case there'll need to be something from the back catalogue to fill the gap. Then there are the games to be played on any given night. Got a big popular show? One way of messing with competitors is to overrun the end of the show by 10 minutes longer than advertised in the hope that the programme on the other channel will already be well underway and viewers won't bother to switch across. The CEO needs people skills too. The on-air talent might be well paid, but ego management is just as important. As TV executive Hugh Marks liked to say, good people are tricky. Key executives also need inspiration and support in a brutally competitive environment where there are as many failures as there are successes. Meanwhile, a TV network's revenue comes almost entirely from advertising, which means that a deep understanding of the dynamics of the ad industry is essential. Media agency deals are complicated. The greater the share of clients' budgets the agencies commit to a network, the better price they can command. But the agencies don't want to overcommit to any one network in case it doesn't deliver on its ratings, which would potentially mean that their clients would get less reach than they're planning for. Relationships are key. Media buyers sometimes change jobs, but they rarely leave the industry. For the TV networks, their sales team have cosy relationships going back with these executives for decades. However, appointing a new CEO is also a compromise. Those who've come up through the advertising sales side have not been as close to making the shows. Those from the programming background have fewer deep commercial relationships. And those from the accounting side are strong on the profit and loss management, but are rarely TV naturals. The departure of Grant Blackley set in train a series of events that laid bare the complex three-way, multi-generation dynamic between the Packer family, the Murdoch family, and seven proprietor, Kerry Stokes. When 10 began looking for a replacement for Blackley, there was one obvious target, and he wasn't far away. Less than two kilometres from 10's headquarters in Piermont, James Warburton was campaigning for the top job at 7's Jones Bay headquarters. He'd been promised the role, but he wasn't sure if his boss, David Leckie, was willing to get out of the way. The details would later emerge in court. The urbane Warburton was widely viewed in the industry as the person most likely to be the next CEO of a television network. Rarely seen without a suit and tie, he knew everyone who mattered. Early in his career, he had acquired a reputation as one of the most driven and self-confident executives in the industry. After a career that had included running media agency Universal McCann's Australian operation and leading Hyundai's marketing, he'd been in charge of sales at the Seven Network since August 2003. He'd arrived when the Seven Network was at rock bottom. Being a poor second to nine had become a habit for Seven, and there'd been a procession of CEOs. 
But the turnaround had begun a few months before Warburton's arrival, when proprietor Kerry Stokes hired the mercurial David Leckie, who'd been fired by Kerry Packer as nine CEO a year or so earlier. While Leckie worked his ratings magic, helped by desperate housewives lost in Grey's Anatomy, Warburton was modernising Seven's sales operation and making early noises about doing more to prepare for digital disruption. The network had also successfully entered and won the morning battle, with breakfast show Sunrise and daytime show The Morning Show quickly overtaking Nine's The Today Show and Kerry Ann. But Leckie, who'd always been seen as a flawed TV genius, was increasingly being seen merely as flawed. By 2010, news coverage was talking about Leckie's difficult relationship with alcohol. And while it was seen as inevitable that Leckie would leave at some point, proprietor Kerry Stokes first wanted to complete a merger of his TV interests with his more recently acquired controlling stake in the West Australian newspaper in Perth. Warburton, due to negotiate a new employment contract as his current one would expire in July 2011, was bored of being sales director and wanted to run the network. By October 2010, Stokes and Leckie were floating the idea that Warburton would be made head of television while Leckie would remain CEO of the wider media company. Warburton feared that the power would remain with Leckie, who would not be able to resist the temptation to meddle. On 2nd of November, despite the offer of a million dollar pay rise, he declined the head of television offer. A week later, he was invited over to Kerry Stokes' office in Sydney's Woolloomooloo. Stokes made a half promise. I may be forced to make a decision in the next few months. If I make that decision, then David will be removed from the business. Stokes told Warburton that as well as looking after his number two in the sales team, Kurt Burnett, programming boss Tim Warner would also need to be given new responsibilities if a change was made. Warburton went into the Christmas break with no resolution about his role. When he came back to work in January 2011, Lachlan Murdoch, by now on the board at 10, got in touch to set up a lunch. They put the 28th of February in the diary. Meanwhile, Stokes was leaning on Leckie to get out of Warburton's way. On the 17th of February, Leckie suggested to Warburton that in much the same way that Julia Gillard had rolled Kevin Rudd for the Labour leadership five months before, he was being ousted by the younger rival. He told Warburton, It's sad. You've done a Gillard. I have to move aside. I'm not ready. But Warburton's conversation with Stokes later that day was less conclusive. Stokes promised Warburton the role of CEO of the whole group, but not for another 18 months. Referring to Leckie's drinking, Warburton told him, It's too long, Kerry. It's killing me. I'm bored. And it's just not a great role. Reporting to David is embarrassing. You see the good side. We see the rest. The next week was a big one for the media industry. On Monday the 21st of February 2011, the merger of Seven Network and the West Australian was announced with the creation of Seven West Media. And two days later, at the instigation of Murdoch and Packer, the 10 board sacked Grant Blackley. Suddenly the whole industry was speculating about whether Warburton would go to 10. 
Murdoch moved his meeting with Warburton forward by two days, inviting him and his equally high-flying wife, Nikki, Group Director of Product Sales and Marketing at regional pay TV company Ostar, to lunch at his house on Saturday the 26th of February. It was quite a weekend for Warburton. That Saturday he met up with Stokes at the billionaire Sydney house at 9am. Stokes offered him a three-year contract starting at $1.8 million a year and rising to $2.2 million plus a bonus. But there was a sticking point. For the first 12 months, his promotion would only be to head of television, reporting to Leckie, not boss of the whole thing. In Warburton's recollection of events, he was doubtful whether it would be a meaningful job and warned Stokes that he needed to hear directly from Leckie that he'd make room. In Stokes' version, they shook hands on the deal. At 12.30pm, Warburton went on to lunch at Lachlan Murdoch's house. Afterwards, the duo chatted on the veranda. Warburton explained the situation with Leckie, but left the door open to come across to 10 if he didn't trust the deal. He told Murdoch that if that happened, he'd be free to start when his seven contract expired on the 14th of July. On the Monday morning, things went badly with Leckie. Here comes Mr Ambitious. I've been kicked into touch. I've been retired. How sad, was how Leckie greeted him. Warburton told him, If we can't work together, then it will be a futile exercise. I have no choice. I'll still be involved, though. I'll still call people. I'll still call the shots, insisted Leckie. Warburton decided to jump. Before the end of the day, he was in Murdoch's office, where he was offered a three-year contract, including an annual salary of $2.2 million. At 10am on the Wednesday, Warburton showed up at Nova and was taken through to Murdoch's office to sign the contract. He took a taxi for the 10-minute ride back to Seven. Word was already out. The first person to call him in the car was Nine CEO David Gingell, who was still close to Packer. Well done, mate. Look forward to competing with you, Gingell told him. Warburton went straight to Leckie's office and gave him the news. I've made a decision. I'm joining 10, he told him. You haven't signed anything, have you? I signed a few minutes ago. Having been leaned on by Stokes to make room, Leckie knew he'd be in trouble with his boss. James! Oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. This is the worst day of my career. Finally, he appeared to realise that Warburton had been serious about leaving. I prefer to resign and stand aside and allow you to have my job than you leave. After speaking to Stokes on the phone, Warburton began to say goodbyes to the people he expected to be competing with in four months' time. One of his last conversations in the building was with HR boss Samantha Liston. She told Warburton she was preparing a letter for him. Back in 2007, he'd signed a separate contract which included a 12-month non-compete clause, she reminded him. Nice try, Sam. Weren't you aware of the non-compete? It does not apply to me. Yes, it does. Let's not fuck around and get nasty. It got nasty. The next day, Seven wrote to Warburton, saying it intended to hold him to the lengthy non-compete period. 
The drama began to play out against the backdrop of the complex relationship between Kerry Stokes, the Murdochs and James Packer. Stokes's Seven had spent nearly eight years in litigation over the failure of his C7 pay TV venture. It had pitted him against a consortium, including the Murdoch's News Limited and the Packer family's PBL Media. Seven had eventually lost the court case and then an appeal, with closure coming only in December 2009, all of which showed just how long and how hard Stokes was prepared to fight. The poaching of his star talent infuriated Stokes, who made angry calls to both Lachlan Murdoch and James Packer. What Stokes had not noticed was that moments after Ten had released its ASX announcement about the hiring of Warburton, it had put out a second announcement. It was just one sentence long. Ten Network Holdings Limited today announced the resignation of James Packer as a director of the company, effective immediately. Damon Kitney's biography of James Packer, The Price of Fortune, explains what happened next. After reading the release, Stokes was quickly back on the phone to James. His voice was far more conciliatory. James, you've resigned? Stokes asked, almost rhetorically. James replied, yes, Kerry, I have. There was a pause before Stokes almost whispered in response. Everything's going to be okay, James. Meanwhile, Packer's resignation was an unwelcome development for Lachlan Murdoch. It meant that the friend who had brought him into the ten deal in the first place would no longer be an ally in the boardroom. Stokes's forgiveness did not extend to Murdoch and Warburton, though. Seven went to the New South Wales Supreme Court, arguing that the non-compete clause stood... The conversations between Warburton and his seven colleagues, quoted earlier in this chapter, come from his affidavit prepared for the court case. Seven argued that because Warburton knew confidential details of Seven's agency deals and staff contracts, he should not be allowed to start at 10 immediately. The court ruled on the 11th of May. Justice Michael Pembroke backed Seven's arguments. Warburton was indeed obliged to abide by the non-complete clause. He could not start in July. Salesman that he was, though, Warburton had found a fan in the judge. Mr Warburton is a highly skilled and talented television executive. At the Seven Network, he was the natural successor to David Leckie as chief executive officer. Like Caesar, however, Mr Leckie was not ready to go observed Justice Pembroke in the ruling. In a small win for Warburton, though, the judge ruled that it was only necessary for him to sit out until 1st of January 2012 to protect Seven's confidential information. By then, the TV networks would have been through another cycle of upfront negotiations with the media agencies. If he becomes the chief executive officer of Network 10 from 1st of January 2012... Mr Warburton may well represent a competitive threat to Seven, but this will not realistically be because of his retention of confidential information acquired by him at Seven prior to the 2nd of March 2011, but because of his skill, talent, personality and past successful record in the industry, the judge flatteringly concluded. It was a bad day in court for Ten and Warburton. 
they were ordered to pay 70% of Seven's legal costs. Plans for rebuilding Ten's team under Warburton went on hold. Acting CEO Lachlan Murdoch ended up spending 10 months running Ten. That was the latest chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to hear all future chapters, you'll need to be a paying subscriber of Unmade. You can sign up at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. Once you do, it only takes a couple of clicks to add the paid-for feed to the podcast app of your choice. The book was written and recorded in northwest Tasmania on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast is produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. For voiceovers and audio production, from corporate to commercial, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'll be back with the next chapter soon. Toodle pip.